1: For most of my family members, holding on to our land in Gilmer, Texas, was simply more trouble than it was worth. What started with 80 acres of potential farmland, or property to extract resources from, turned into a liability over time. Why? Taxes. My name is Pless Maurice Montgomery III. You might remember Pless from episode one. He's a computer technician by trade. 67, and lives in Dallas. He came into about 24 acres in much the same way my dad did. It was passed down to him from my great-great aunt and uncle, the Brodies. Pleas, more than any relative I spoke to, has tried to make something of our family's land. He leased the trees on it to a timber company. He sold oil rights. He even toyed with the idea of turning it into a farm. But as time went by, he decided to give up on the land.
2: Basically, what I decided to do, or what I wanted to do, was to simply sell the land so that it was no longer a liability on
1: me or my family. Problem was, his tax bills kept going up. When I first started following this, uh, I'd get tax statements every year
2: from Upshur County. The, the, The whole thing would come out to maybe... $1,500, $2,000, fifteen hundred two thousand dollars. Okay.
1: Fifteen hundred two thousand dollars a year?
2: Uh, yes. Okay. And then suddenly the tax statements I, I would get they started to increase exponentially. The last statement I remember was right around twenty five hundred dollars and when when, when this, this this increase took place it went up to And then I noticed slight increases over the next few years. And then in 2005 or so, the statement I got indicated almost a $20,000
1: tax liability. And it continued to rise from there. Over the years, pleasants tax liability gained as he fell behind on payments. It's also made it hard for him to find a buyer who would take on those unpaid taxes. In a wide-ranging interview, the mayor of Gilmer, Tim Marshall, described the essential role of property taxes in funding local projects. I
2: think what people are expecting are they're expecting their infrastructure to be maintained. And people don't understand sometimes that the infrastructure, even in a little small town like this, is the sewer, water, streets, and different things like that, the police department, the fire department. There's a lot of inner workings within the city and the value of your land, typically, most people around has gone down a little bit. So by raising your taxes a little bit, the rate, we generate the same amount of money.
1: No one disputes the need of a county or district to raise funds for schools and roads. But for many black Americans like PLEZ, high tax bills have also become the greatest burden on land ownership. And in thousands of U.S. counties, something more is happening. Black Americans are experiencing unfairly high taxes. In today's episode, we'll take you to one of those places.
3: Now the statistics are rather cruel. The gap between the average income for Negroes in this country and the average income for whites has not closed
4: do you think a negro family moving here will affect the community as a whole
5: i think that well the property values will immediately go down if uh, they are allowed to move in here in any number so much bitterness built up in a person and resentment when you know that you're being segregated against simply because you're black
0: to keep us at the bottom of the economic ladder the bottom of the housing ladder the bottom of the educational ladder
5: we have lived i leaves in terrible condition for how many years maybe
0: 400 years
6: I was prepared to try to get used to having a colored family in the block Well now there's another one across the street and pretty soon there'll be one next door and before you know it those streets are going to start looking like Harlem Well I don't want to live in a colored slum I don't want to live in a colored slum Is that so terrible?
7: Welcome back to The Paycheck. I'm Rebecca Greenfield.
1: And I'm Jackie Simmons. In the U.S., owning property has been a major driver of wealth creation. Last week, we talked about land ownership and how black farmland in particular has been chipped away over the years. This week, we're turning our attention to the heart of the American dream owning a home.
7: As we talked about previously, Race and racism has a lot to do with who, historically, has had access to the U.S. housing market. And we see those legacies play out in the stats today. Nearly three-quarters of white families own homes, while less than half of black families do. This has helped white people build wealth in all sorts of ways. What's even more troubling is that these disparities aren't getting any better. In 2019, black home ownership rates hit a record low since at least 1970. There are lots of reasons for that, but at least some of it has to do with taxes. A new Bloomberg Businessweek investigation uncovers how an unfair taxation system is hitting black homeowners hardest. Jason Grotto has the story.
3: Success is more than the final destination, it's a path you take one step at a time, it's discipline. Start your journey at stiefel.com. That's S T I F E L.com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
5: I want to take you on a journey of what it's like for me when I have to pay my rent every month. Um, I don't put.
8: It's the last weekend of the, of the month, so Dilesia Scott is on her way to the post office. Uh,
5: can I have a money order for
0: 8
3: yes. Where I need a money order.
5: Uh-huh. Where is it going to?
3: It's for a rent
8: payment. From there, she drives north on the freeway, just past Detroit's city limit, to hand deliver her rent to a drab office building.
5: Noble for era. So if I drop it off myself, I drive it here. I know it got here. Um, I see that it went into the building, so no one can say, "Well, we didn't get your payment."
8: This monthly ritual leaves her feeling angry and frustrated. That's because this isn't just any house she's renting. She's been renting a home that, for years, she used to own. It's not just
5: a rental property. This is my home, right? I raised my children in this space. My one son, since he was two years old. My other kids, five or six. We did things in a home that you can't take out. I can pack up my tangible stuff, but I can't pack my memories.
8: Despite the trouble it's caused her, Dilesia clings fiercely to the two story Tudor where she's lived with her three children for sixteen years. The landlord refuses to give her a lease or fix the collapsing back porch, and when it rains, well, she needs three buckets upstairs to catch water from the leaky roof. Well, you
5: can- when it's raining, you can tell how hard it's raining.
0: <laughs> you can not how because yes. the water literally
8: pour in. The,
5: the water literally will pour in and the drips So, like if I'm sleeping in the middle of the night and it starts to storm and it's raining real hard, the drips will wake me up out of my sleep. Like oh, wow. <laughs> like oh shit, let's put out a bucket.
8: The story of how Dylisia lost her home is tied up in an injustice that has gone on for years and touches nearly every community in the country. It's a problem that has contributed to the racial wealth gap by saddling lower income, mostly black, communities with burdens that wealthier and whiter ones avoid. It's a systematic injustice that lurks in the most mundane of manners, municipal property taxes. D'Alesia lost her home in 2014, because she fell three years behind on her property taxes. She got laid off from her job at a domestic violence shelter during the Great Recession. Then her partner, the father of her kids, left, drastically reducing the family's monthly income. It took her two years to find a job at a new shelter. By then, the fees and fines from missing payments compounded the money she already owed, leaving her stuck in a crushing cycle.
5: I fell into depression. There was days where I didn't even realize that my kids had to go to school. Like, I just could not get out of the bed. My mental capacity just wasn't there.
8: To recoup the unpaid taxes, Wayne County, Michigan foreclosed on her home, which she had purchased in 2005 for $63,800. Then the county auctioned it off in November 2014, and a Utah-based investment company snapped it up just $4,600. Since then, the house has sold two more times to different investors. The last sale in February 2020 fetched $84,000, 18 times the price paid six years earlier. Dilesia, meanwhile, lost her entire investment. In fact, she pays more now in rent than she did when she had a mortgage. But here's the catch. She never should have lost her home because her tax bill should never have been that high in the first place. For years, Detroit city officials used wildly inaccurate valuations of the house to calculate Dilesia's property tax bills, artificially inflating them by about $5,800 more than she should have paid, according to a Bloomberg analysis of her tax records. Once she fell behind, Late fees and other penalties made it even harder to catch up. After missing two more bills, she was nearly $10,000 in the hole. Hers was among tens of thousands of homes in Detroit's lower-income, black neighborhoods that city officials routinely overvalued for tax purposes. Meanwhile, homes in affluent areas were systematically undervalued, reducing the taxes those homeowners paid. Detroit officials have admitted they overtaxed about 130,000 people between 2010 and 2013. But they say that now, while mistakes do happen, the system overall is fair. That assessment is disputed by Christopher Berry, who first uncovered these inequities. A public policy professor at the University of Chicago, Chris has been studying property tax systems for years. I met him while working as a reporter in Chicago where he started documenting unfair assessments. He didn't realize it at the time, but he was about to embark on years of research uncovering the fundamental unfairness of property taxes.
6: I had kind of been thinking of this as one of these only in Chicago sort of phenomena. And there's just so many things like this that you get used to if you're a person that lives here in Chicago. But as that Chicago work began to, to, to get attention, I started to hear from people elsewhere. And first it was, you know, some activists in Detroit who said, hey, you know, we read about what's going on in Chicago and the work you did there. We're having the same issues here. You should take a look. And then it was, you know, a lawyer in New York says, we've got a lawsuit going on, similar issues here. And then it's a reporter in St. Louis. You know, every place I look, I'm finding something similar. You know, the names change. Some of the details are different. But the overall pattern of unfairness and equity is just repeated place after place.
8: Chris found that in cities and towns across the U.S., local officials have systematically overvalued the lowest-priced homes relative to the highest, creating higher effective tax rates for those who can least afford to pay. From 2006 through 2016, inaccurate valuations gave the least expensive homes in Baltimore an effective tax rate that was more than two times higher than the most expensive. In New York City, it was three times higher. In St. Louis, almost four. In theory, these taxes should be completely fair. Property taxes are what's known as ad valorem, Latin for according to value. Every property in a given place is supposed to be taxed at the same effective rate. What determines that rate is the value of the property, and that's where things go wrong, Chris found.
6: The nature of the problem is that people that own lower priced homes are systematically having their homes valued at more than their worth, while people at the top are systematically having their homes valued at less than their worth. And when the values are not right and the values are unequal, then the taxes, which are just computed based on those values, are also going to be unequal.
8: Chris found the property tax is deeply unfair because it's regressive. That means the burden of the tax falls heavier on lower-income people. It's the opposite of progressive taxes, such as the federal income tax, which applies higher rates to people with higher incomes. And that's a big deal because Americans pay more than $500 billion a year in property taxes. That pays for public safety, schools, sanitation, and all the other services cities and towns provide.
6: Is, as a matter of equity and uh, our, our values as a society, there are lots of reasons why people may argue about progressive taxation. I mean, should should the rich pay more? But there's really nobody who's making a normative argument in favor of regressive taxation, right? That as a matter of principle, we should have the poor pay more.
8: This isn't happening in a vacuum. The disparities hurt black communities disproportionately because the legacy of racial discrimination has left those communities with a larger share of lower-priced homes. The median home value in Black census tracts is nearly half of what it is in majority white and Hispanic ones, according to a Bloomberg analysis. So the way this shakes out is Black homeowners end up paying more in property taxes relative to their market value than white ones.
6: This is just a textbook example of institutional racism or systemic racism or whatever you'd like to label it. And what I mean by that is I don't think there's anybody in the assessor's office who's sitting there and explicitly saying, hey, let's go in the black neighborhoods and, uh, you know, jack up their assessments and then let's go to the white neighborhoods and, and make them lower. But nevertheless, the outcomes that we see from the system are racially disproportionate. And that's the very definition of sort of institutional racism.
8: But of course, these kinds of disparities are rooted in a history of racial discrimination that is explicit. And it's impossible to understand why this taxation disproportionately affects black communities without talking about the U.S. legacy of housing segregation. I sat down with Brenton Mock of Bloomberg City Lab. He's been covering this for a while. Hey, Bretton, thanks for joining us.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
8: I'm excited to dig into this.
0: Yeah, well, it all starts with home ownership, which is one of the primary ways that many Americans accumulated wealth in the 20th century. But it's one that white families have been able to capitalize on in ways that black families have not. And this runs so much
8: deeper than property taxes, right? I mean, the history here helps explain why black Americans are the ones with lowered valued homes to begin with.
0: Yeah, and here's the irony. You talked about homes being overvalued when it comes to setting the property tax rate. Well, many of those same homes are being undervalued by a different set of appraisers when it comes to deciding what they're worth on the market. Because of racial segregation, properties in majority black communities have historically been appraised at much lower values and sold at lower prices than similar properties in majority white neighborhoods. That kind of price coding has pretty much been cemented in the housing market thanks to the practice of redlining.
8: Redlining. Katerina talked about that in Episode 2. How does that fit into our story?
0: Yeah, like Katerina explained, uh, redlining was a government-sanctioned program for deciding that entire neighborhoods would be considered risky by giving them a grade between A and D. Black neighborhoods were routinely graded D and literally shaded in red on real estate maps in just about every city in the U.S. This practice pretty much ensured that very few people in black neighborhoods would be able to purchase houses or even get loans to improve homes that were already purchased.
8: But those laws have been reformed now. Have fair housing laws at least begun to reduce the gap between white and black home appraisals?
0: Well, that's the crazy part. Yes, starting in 1968 with the Fair Housing Act, these particular practices were banned. But actually, recent research has found that the gap between appraisal values of black and white homes has widened. The gap is being exacerbated because appraisers currently decide a home's value by looking at the selling prices of surrounding homes. Without any kind of correction, that history of low values has just compounded over time.
8: But what does that disparity mean in economic terms?
0: So I spoke with Andre Perry of the Brookings Institution to help put this into context. I worked with him on a book several years ago about undervalued black properties. Since then, he's done a study to quantify differences in black home values. He explained how after controlling for all housing and neighborhood factors, homes in black neighborhoods were underpriced in appraisals compared to white neighborhoods by 23%.
4: Here's Andre. Accumulatively, that's about 156 billion in lost equity, and that's just in 2017 alone. I always put it in in per, um, perspective. Um, the 156 billion would have financed more than 4.4 million black-owned businesses, based on the average amount blacks use to start up their firms. They would have paid for more than eight million. Um, college degrees based on the average amount of a public education. Now, this is money that is really robbing people of the opportunity to lift themselves up. And remember
0: where we started this conversation, the racial wealth gap. These differences matter because home assets are supposed to appreciate as they are passed down through generations. As Andre puts it,
4: wealth begets wealth. So, if you are able to own a home, if your grandfather was able to own a home, and they and he or she, he had children, he could pass on the equity gained from that house to the child, or um, you can apply it to um, uh, the college education. You can use it to start a business. Remember, most people start their their business using the equity in their home. So. Um if you did not have, if your grandfather, great grandfather could not own a home, it's, l- it's less likely you're going to be able to have wealth.
3: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. Start your journey at steeple.com That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
2: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
8: Dilesia is acutely aware of this relationship between home ownership and wealth. It's why she's so doggedly committed to buying her home back, despite the perversity of the costs she has already borne. Like so many other parents, she's concerned about leaving her three kids an asset that will give them a leg up because she believes they'll be better off in the long run. For her, the house could be a source of foundational wealth.
5: You know, I just want to leave them more than a couple of insurance policy. Uh, and that's that's the only thing, a couple of insurance policy and a raggedy car. That's the only thing I have to offer them right now. And that's not fair for them. And I have to think about my mortality. I have to think about a plan, what is going to happen to them. Um, I don't want them, even if 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 I'm able to buy this house, I don't want them to have to live there for the rest of them, their lives. Like, But I want them to have an asset, right?
8: Dilesia lost the home after it was overvalued by a property tax assessor. Even though many of the same homes get undervalued, when it comes to appraising their market price. How does that happen? To understand that, you need to get an idea for how local tax officials determine the value of homes. Unlike appraisers, assessors aren't able to visit every home in the city. Instead, they look at the prices of homes that have sold within the last year or so. They then use computer models to estimate the value for all the homes in the area. But those computer models are only as good as the data going into them. It turns out there are some significant gaps in the data, and those gaps lead to some pretty serious errors that cause unfair assessments to creep in, especially for people in lower-valued homes. Chris explains.
6: I often try to explain this to people by imagining that we did income taxes the same way we did property taxes. So imagine that the IRS each year only got a W-2 for about 1% of the population. So for 1% of the people, the IRS actually knows what your income was. And for the other 99% of people, they have to guess. They have to guess what your income is. And as a taxpayer, you don't file taxes. You just get a letter from the IRS each year saying, hey, we guessed that you made $100,000 last year. Here's your tax bill. That's how we do property taxes. If we did income that way, I think it would be pretty obvious to people the ways in which that would be sort of incorrect and unfair.
8: Just to build on the professor's analogy, local property tax officials do a bit more than just flat-out guessing. They try to compare similar homes. Say, a four-bedroom, two-bathroom ranch house sells for $250,000. Local officials will use that information to help guide how they assess the value of other four-bedroom, two-bathroom ranch houses in the same area or neighborhood. If the IRS used that same method to set income taxes, the resulting unfairness becomes pretty clear.
6: Suppose they knew nothing about you at all the best they could guess is that you were making the average income. They'd say, we think you made the average income last year, pay taxes on the average income. Well, that's really bad for people who earn below the average because they're being treated as if they earned more than they did and they're paying taxes that are too high. But it's a great deal for people who are above average because they're being told they were average and they're paying taxes that are too low. And so you can already see the inequity that's built in this kind of averaging. That's what would happen if they had no data about you at all.
8: But even with a little more data, the method that local officials use to set property values just isn't robust enough to capture important differences in market values among different homes. For people like Delicia, those flaws can be disastrous. In fact, in places like Detroit, they just don't keep Black families from acquiring and passing down wealth. They contribute to the actual destruction of it.
6: One of the things we know about the the whole property tax process is that when people can't pay, they are subject to various kinds of sanctions by the state. And so you may have had your home systematically overtaxed, overcharged too much. And then if you can't pay those unfair taxes, you might lose your home due to a tax foreclosure. Uh, or you might have your home sold from out from under you to some kind of investment firm that's going around buying up these low valued homes. And you know, there's nowhere in the country where this has been a bigger problem than Detroit, where fully you know, one quarter of all homes in Detroit have been foreclosed on for failure to pay taxes. I'm not talking about a mortgage foreclosure here, but in fact, a tax foreclosure.
8: In fact, Detroit officials have admitted they overtax tens of thousands of people. Yet the property tax system is so complicated that Delicia didn't find out about being overtaxed until so she read about Chris's work in her local newspaper in February 2020 6 years after she lost her home soon after she reached out to him but by that point there was nothing she could do about it
5: it's embarrassing right there I feel like there is no safe place for me to have this conversation cuz I'm going to get judged one way or an- an- another um you know, it's it's a lot. I, I feel betrayed too. Yeah, I feel left behind. I I, I feel left behind. And then and then well, last year to learn that I was overtaxed by five thousand. It makes me sad. It makes me depressed. It makes me feel like a failure.
8: And that's another consequence of broken tax systems. People like Dilecia are forced to process and struggle with the shame of it all, even though what's happened isn't her fault, because she was treated unfairly. In fact, Dilecia is so ashamed that six years on, she still hadn't told her children that she had lost the home.
5: I'm going to eventually have to have that conversation. I don't know how, um, but I figure I have to give myself a time frame because... I don't know, Um, it's very scary right now, not being on the lease, Um, but I have to have a plan for them. Like, I just can't just say like, oh, this is it, and okay, see you guys later. They don't deserve this. My daughter actually, she looked it up, and she said, huh, I was on this site, this a couple of months ago. I was on this site, and it said our house was sold in February. And I said, girl, I don't know what you're talking about.
8: Since Detroit officials admitted to past problems, they say they fixed the system and that now it's fair. Yet Chris has found that property taxes in Detroit continue to be really regressive. Still, Alvin Horn, the city's top assessment official, has come out against Chris's findings. Here he is at a recent press conference.
6: Valuation, and a very smart person once told me this, is an art, not a science. You have the facts, but you also have to understand the market. Detroit is a unique market, and you can't, you can't get those nuances simply from a sales study. You have to live here, and you have to understand what's going on here to understand valuation.
8: At that same press conference... He and Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan criticized Chris for refusing to share the data underlying the study. But later, in an interview with me, the top assessor admitted he had seen the data, saying that, on average, Detroit's system is fair, while acknowledging that mistakes can still happen. The data say otherwise. In fact, I replicated parts of Chris's analysis and found the same thing. Detroit's system remains deeply unfair. Despite everything she's been through, Dyleesia still holds on to the hope that she can buy back her home. To try to save for a down payment, she took on a second job in October, delivering food via DoorDash.
5: Usually what what happens, a typical day for me during the week is um, I go to work. Like when I work on site, I go to work. Then straight from work, I get in my car, I turn on my Dash app and I start dashing to probably about 10, 11 o'clock at night. Then I do it again on the weekend.
8: Sometimes, when she's out delivering food in more affluent neighborhoods, Dilesia can't help but consider all that's happened to her.
5: I go to these fancy homes and they're just so nice. They all lit up and beautiful. And um, last night I went to a house and they had like about five or six brand new cars in the driveway. And all I think of when I see this, like, this is nice. This is real nice. All I want is my piece of shit. Like, <laughs> like, like. Like I'm sure it would be nice, but I I just want what what I've worked so hard for.
1: Dilisa's experience shows one way the system keeps many black families off the wealth ladder that is home ownership. For Plez back in Texas, there was never going to be a farm or profits from oil or timber. Instead, With no buyer in sight, he's stuck with the land and is now on the hook for at least $60,000 in taxes and penalties. That's on top of as much as $16,000 he says he and some family members have already paid. For the record, I dug into county documents and talked to local officials. Indeed, his tax bill jumped between 2009 and 2010, more than double. But the county tax assessor says that overall... The tax liability is where it is because he hasn't paid taxes as they came due. Klaz is now facing foreclosure. And between his social security checks and some income from his side business fixing computers, he makes ends meet. But says sometimes he's just living paycheck to paycheck.
7: For the next few episodes, we'll be looking at ways to close the racial wealth gap. First up, a program that works, but is highly controversial.
8: Without that extra step, you know, I may would have done okay in life.
5: But I doubt if if I would have gotten a PhD by the time I was 26.
8: And I doubt if I would have been a professor at the age of 23.
7: Thanks for listening to The Paycheck. If you like this show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was hosted by me, Rebecca Greenfield. And me, Jackie Simmons.
1: Today's episode was edited by Nicole Flato and Francesca Levy. It was reported with the help of Jason Grotto and Brenton Mock.
7: This episode was produced by Magnus Henriksen. We also had production help from Lindsay Cradwell and editing help from Janet Paskin, Rakshita Saluja, John Boskell, Jackie Simmons, and me. Our original music is by Leo Sidron. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts. We'll see you next time.